Good to be with you again this morning. Blessed Happy New Year to all of you. We're turning to Matthew's Gospel uh, this morning, Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses. <clears throat> Hear then the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out for them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down, worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We give thanks to God for his word. Well, the New York Times list of best-selling books over the last 10, 20 years or so uh, hasn't exactly been friendly to Christians. The late Christopher Hitchens wrote the best-selling book, God is Not Great, and he often went on TV to call Christians names and to suggest that even someone like Mother Teresa was just a self-centered sham. Scientist Daniel Dennett takes every opportunity he can find to say that religion is unhealthy. And the zoologist Richard Dawkins penned the book The God Delusion, in which he claimed that religion stems from a defect of the brain and that the religious people are zany, loopy, sick, pathetic, retrograde, hostile, and just generally not nice. Well, given all of that, it's, it's a little hard to imagine any church anywhere issuing a special invitation to people like this to come join them for worship. Most of us probably wouldn't want to see folks like that at our church, and if by some quirk they showed up some Sunday anyway, we might quietly wish they'd go away. Maybe we wouldn't even be that quiet about it. We're pretty sure that they don't belong here and we would be highly suspicious of their motives for coming here in the first place. Well, we might miss it, but at, you might miss it when you look at it at first, but actually that is the exact scenario that Matthew 2 presents to us. Now, this coming Friday will mark the day of Epiphany. January 6th is exactly 12 days since Christmas Day, and yes, that's where we get the song, the 12 days of Christmas. 
And in the tradition of the church, January 6th, Epiphany, is the day that we think about the star that appeared to the Magi and led them to the Christ child, to Bethlehem. Now, of course, we just spent a whole month looking at manger scenes of, of all kinds, and most of them included the Magi, didn't they? Of course, we also know that actually the Magi showed up quite some time later. But no matter what the precise timing of their visit may have been, we're not particularly surprised to see the Magi. That, however, would not have been the case for Matthew's original readers. For them, this would have been a very shocking epiphany. Some of you have maybe heard of the preacher Debbie Blue. She once suggested in a sermon that each year in December, uh, we ought to form guerrilla teams and go around the country and infiltrate manger scenes and make some strategic additions. Just think of people's reactions if they saw a, a big uh, plastic Bart Simpson next to Jesus' manger, or, or maybe an inflatable Batman up on the roof of the stable. Or maybe, instead of the little drummer boy, the Energizer Bunny drumming his drum there next to the cows and the sheep. Now that would be a manger scene that would catch your attention. And that's exactly what Matthew did for his folks 2,000 years ago. Today we'd object loudly that Bart Simpson doesn't belong in Jesus' story. And while we're at it, we don't really want Hitchens and Dennett and Dawkins hanging around Christians either. Those people don't belong in our story. Those people threaten our story. But to the minds of most people in, Mag in Matthew's day, that was how they viewed the Magi. A threat to the story, not a part of it. They didn't belong there. And yet we forget the scandal of this text. After all, we like the Magi, the, the wise men, the, the three kings of the Orient. They add a dash of color to our Christmas programs with their royal blue garments embroidered with gold. They provide a whiff of the exotic through their Persian ways as hints of spices fill the air. And above all, perhaps, we think they sound just the right note of royalty for the child king in the manger. None of that was Matthew's point, however. First of all, the Magi were almost certainly not royalty. At best, they may have been associated with the royal courts of Persia, though even that much is uncertain. Further, we don't really know how many of them there were. The long tradition of the three wise men is based on the slender thread of evidence that they gave Jesus three gifts. But you know, there could have been 20 of them who gave him three gifts or something. So we don't really know uh, how many there were. But the idea that there were three magi was furthered in the 8th century when somebody named Saint Bede the Venerable strangely supplied the names of Melchior, Gaspar, and Baltazar for the magi. Who knows where he got those names? He may have just made them up. But then, some centuries after that odd development in Magi lore, the Empress Helena made her own contributions to Magi mythology by claiming that she, uh, she had had a vision that led her to the burial site of these three kings. She had the remains exhumed and the 
alleged skulls of the three magi are on display in a church in Cologne, Germany to this day. And so we're now convinced that there were three of them, that they were kings, that their visit was not even mildly surprising to see. We think it's a welcome, happy event, in fact. But that's all fantasy. That all has about as much to do with the Bible as some Steven Spielberg, Indiana Jones movie about the Lost Ark or the Holy Grail, which is to say nothing at all to do with the Bible. The biblical record is the only evidence we have to go on, and based on that, uh, we can understand that the presence of these people was neither expected nor particularly welcomed. Because these Megoi, the Greek word, these Megoi were the ancient equivalent of magicians. But no, they weren't magicians of the David Copperfield variety or somebody who pulls a rabbit out of a hat. Instead, the Magi are more today what we would call astrologers, stargazers, people who try to predict the future based on what was in the stars. These were, in short, the guys who wrote the horoscope column for the Baghdad Gazette. The Magi were what many today would label as quacks and charlatans. They were flimflam artists, con artists, purveyors of the hokey and the surreal. And that's why the Old Testament in our Bible actually provides even more choice language for such persons. The Bible condemns magi types as idolatrous deceivers who are to be avoided by godly folk. Indeed, a Jewish rabbi writing not long before Jesus was born had this to say, he who learns from a magi is worthy of death. Oddly, however, in Matthew's gospel, the Magi did manage to get one thing right. Something cosmic had happened in Judea, in the region of, of Bethlehem. Who knows how that all worked out, but somehow, some way, God got them to the right place at the right time, and they witnessed God's Messiah. And Matthew wanted to make very sure we knew their story. That's why he alone preserved this part of the narrative for us. But again, unlike modern congregations observing the Magi next to Christ's manger, few in Matthew's largely Jewish reading audience would have welcomed these men. I mean, for one thing, the Magi were the bumblers who tipped off King Herod, uh, leading to the slaughter of the innocents some while back as Herod tried to kill the child king that the Magi had tipped him off about. Had it not been for the Magi's query, that whole bloody episode could have been prevented. Now that was bad enough for Matthew's original readers, but it wasn't the worst of it. No, the worst of it was the scandal of having astrologers from Iraq mingling so freely with God's Christ. How could these magicians, condemned by Scripture, mind you, how could they have been a welcome presence next to the long-awaited Messiah? To the people then, these uh, men would have seemed just as rabid as the atheists we talked about earlier, like Dawkins or Hitchens or, or some sect like the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or the like. What do these people have to do 
in our most special story? Why can't we just take them out of the picture? And that's exactly the question Matthew wants you to ask. And he's been forcing a question like that from the get-go in Matthew's gospel. To see that, though, you have to go back and read Matthew 1. And I mean you have to read all of Matthew 1. You can't start at verse 18. You have to slog through that long genealogy, that long family tree of Jesus, and all those names, because if you do, you're going to see a couple of really interesting things. You'll see that Matthew goes out of his way to include the names of four women in Jesus' family tree. What's more, each of those four women was an outsider to Israel, and three of the four of them had had some sad or scandalous story attached to her. But women weren't usually included in Jewish family trees, only the men, and foreigners were left out altogether. But there they are in Matthew 1, four foreign women in Jesus' extended family. And who were these women? Well, the first was the Canaanite, Tamar, who played prostitute in order to um, seduce her father-in-law, Judah. Then there's Rahab, who was a prostitute from the foreign city of Jericho. Ruth brings Moab into the picture. And though the Hittite Bathsheba is not specifically mentioned in Matthew 1, Matthew actually finds a way to twist the knife even more painfully here by referring to Solomon's mother as Uriah's wife. And we all remember the bad end that Uriah met when David had him rubbed out to cover up his adulterous affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Talk about your sad stories. Talk about your skeletons in Jesus' family closet. What's Matthew up to? Well, he is striking a universal tone in his gospel. He wants us to know that Jesus came for all people, not just some people. Matthew wants Jesus' story to include not just men, but women, not just Israelites, but people from all nations, Not just those whose lives are neat and tidy and buttoned down, but also prostitutes and shady types and magi, all of whom were as unlikely candidates for God's love as you could imagine. Because Matthew is conveying the reach of grace. Matthew is giving us here a gospel sneak preview. Because the Christ child who attracted these odd magi to his cradle, he's going to have the same magnetic effect on Samaritan adulterers, tawdry prostitutes, greasy tax collectors on the take, despised Roman soldiers, ostracized lepers. Jesus was a sinner magnet. The same people whom the rest of the world would try to avoid if walking by them on the sidewalk were the very ones who fairly flocked to Jesus. When we see people like this at the mall, we say, hey, let's keep our distance. When Jesus saw them, he said, hey, come on over. Matthew 2 
truly is an epiphany, uh, a revelation for any and all who tend to think that salvation is a members-only club, the adherents of which are easily recognizable by those of us in the know. And as such, this epiphany story is at once the shoe that fits and the shoe that pinches. Because the epiphany question raised by Matthew 2 is, who are today's magi? What people or, or types of people make us uncomfortable or, or upset when we, they try to come to our Jesus? It's a good question to ask as we stand at the head of a brand new year. As we look ahead to the year 2023, we can wonder about our church communities, our school communities, our circles of friends even. Just how wide open is the front door of our lives and of our churches? How wide open are the hearts of us, the people who are already inside God's kingdom? Will outsiders feel welcome if they come in? You know, during Advent and, and Christmas this past month, uh, it was so easy to look at manger scenes of all kinds and maybe find them lovely, maybe even moving. It was so easy to view that hodgepodge of shepherds, magi, animals, new parents, angels, and the infant in the middle of it all, and, and not bat an eye at the spectacle of all that wildly diverse group of people all gathered together under one little roof. But you know, then the season ends, and probably by the time this week is out, most of us will have packed away our manger scenes for another year. Epiphany, though, returns us to the reality of God's church as a place filled with a motley hodgepodge of all kinds of people standing around the one Christ. God calls all kinds of folks and he places them under the roof of one place as we are all called together by the one singular grace of Jesus our Lord. But how challenging it can be to view the real church with its real mishmash of divergent people and do so with unalloyed joy. See, the Magi are at once a cameo of grace and a reminder that grace, real, tough, gritty, divine-style grace, can be difficult to swallow. It's one thing for any one of us to revel in the reality of grace, I mean, we like being told that we've been forgiven our sins. We all like it in church if there's an assurance of pardon in the service. And what a wonderful reminder that we too have been forgiven despite our foibles and our faults and our flaws and our sins. But even so, who among us finds it as easy to accept that same grace when we see it getting applied to somebody who really hurt us? But who, or, or someone whose, whose lifestyle over the years has been almost everything that, that we, we dislike. Don't we often silently find ourselves wishing that old so-and-so would get his comeuppets before he gets forgiven by grace? Whenever we see somebody getting off scot-free, slipping off the hook or out of the noose, escaping their just desserts, well, we find that maybe just a little bit tough take. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, 
we all agree that the idea of forgiveness is lovely, right up until the moment we actually have somebody to forgive. And Lewis wrote that right after World War II, and in connection for the British people and their need to forgive the Germans and the Italians for all that had happened during the war. Today, we could maybe apply it to terrorists or to rogue and renegade nations or less dramatically to any number of people we know but who have wounded us. But if we are to radiate grace, then celebrating the grace that comes to everybody is what we are called to do. The writer Philip Yancey once noted that whatever else you might conclude about Jesus it is clear that he was eminently approachable. Even the most tawdry and sinful folks around did not shy away from Jesus. Isn't that curious? I mean, these days, folks who sense that their lives are not very religious, they, they tend to steer well clear of those of us who are religious. Religious people in America even have a reputation of being kind of mean, a friend of mine recently heard someone say, you know, I feel bad enough about my life. Why would I ever go to church? They'll just make me feel worse. But far from being scared off by Jesus, sinners somehow found Jesus magnetic, attractive, approachable. And although Jesus was just an infant at the time, the Magi felt that same magnetic tug as a kind of preview for all that would happen once Jesus launched his public ministry. When you are full of grace as Jesus was full of grace, it means that you keep that grace as good news, as an instrument of healing and, and not a club with which to bludgeon people. And that's why Jesus leads us to present good and healing news to especially the folks who seem different from us, for whatever the reason. Now, the baby Jesus didn't reject these magicians from Baghdad, but then again, you know, he was after all just a baby. But had those same folks come to Jesus when he was 30 years old, the story of acceptance would have been the same. And by grace, God can make this our story too. As I said earlier, in Advent and at Christmas, we easily accept a, a wild variety of people all gathered under the one roof of Bethlehem's stable. The challenge the other 11 months of the year is to let the Holy Spirit generate that same joy in us when we see all kinds of other people gathered around Jesus under the one roof of his church. In a world riven by strife and sin and division, this isn't easy. But I don't think Matthew would deem this to be an impossible dream. Instead, Matthew views such a grace-filled community of inclusion to be nothing less than the dream of a world reborn. A world reborn through the Christ who was himself birthed long ago in Bethlehem's stall. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, thank you for your servant Matthew. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that inspired his words. Thank you, O Lord, that he was able to bring us to these people and these people to us to remind us of the good news of grace, of the wonderful news 
that your son Jesus was born full of grace and truth and we have seen his glory, the glory of your one and only son and our one and only savior, O Lord. May we, O Lord, by your spirit, spread the goodness of that good news and grace both this day and always. For Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen.